Our text this morning is Luke 10, verses 25 through 29. Excited to turn back to the Gospel of Luke, working our, working our way through. We're going to be looking at chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we consider uh, these words recorded for us uh, by the Holy Spirit through Luke, uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us view our lives in light of reality, that uh, your word would cut through uh, deception and lies in our life. Uh, Father, I pray that we would consider this question, uh, that how would someone inherit eternal life? God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is good to be back in Luke. We, uh, uh, it's been a couple months, and uh, we pick up here in chapter 10. Uh, the rest of the Gospel of Luke is the last uh, couple months of Jesus' life uh, recorded for us. And here we have an encounter that uh, Jesus has with a lawyer. And uh, the lawyer asks a question that I think we don't ask very much in our minds. We don't think about uh, very much in our minds. And my prayer is, is that will change uh, after this morning, that God would uh, work through this text uh, now, this whole text is when Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're going to look at the parable next week. We're going to look at this text in this whole next week. This week, we're going to consider the question uh, and uh, see why uh, Jesus tells this most famous parable of the Good Samaritan. I was reading this week. Uh, an article by Jackie Cohen, who writes for CBS. And she writes and says, America's culture of entertainment uh, is serious business in the United States. Where it's, where it's consumers, it's its consumers' biggest expenditure after housing, food, and health care. 
So the biggest expenditure for Americans is entertainment after housing, food, and healthcare. We live in a, unite, a unique time in history. Uh, I read another, another article uh, that talked about how Americans, there's been a study in 2019 here, that Americans aged 18 or older spend roughly 10 and a half hours a day watching TV, listening to the radio, or using their smartphones and other electronic devices. 10 and a half hours a day. Or maybe awake for 16 or 18 hours a day, and yet as Americans, the average American spends that much time uh, looking or listening to media. Uh, what media tells us is to think about here and now, to listen to the most recent uh, things we might want to hear about, the most recent news. We want uh, up-to-the-minute breaking news. We want to see it. We want to know how we're going to be entertained in the very next five minutes of our life, not just planning for this weekend, but we need to be entertained all the time. This is the culture that we live in. This is what it means to live in 2019 in America. This is an unusual culture in history. Annihilationism Materialism, reincarnation are common beliefs by those who produce the media that we partake in. John MacArthur uh, says that today's postmodern world, dominated by naturalism, evolution, and humanism, uh, Christians can no longer assume that the people they seek to evangelize understand that they'll live forever. People don't think about eternity anymore. The humanistic worldview says this is all there is and then we die. If that's true, let's get on to living in the here and now. Let's not ask questions about eternal life. This is the world we live in and it affects us whether we know it uh, or not. It's a foolish culture. Because 1 John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now get this, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world as we know it is passing away. One of the most terrifying texts in Scripture, I think, is Hebrews 9.27. It says this, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus Christ is coming back for people who are thinking about eternal life. He's not coming back to die for sins again. He's coming back for those who are eagerly waiting for him. We have a spiritual battle on our hands, in our minds, in in our hearts, living in the United States of America in 2019. As we come to our text in Luke 10, I want you to look at verse 25. The charge of this message is this, live your life in light of the eternal consequences. And before we read verse 25, I just want to remind us, why do we gather together on Sunday mornings? Why do we gather together to hear a monologue from a preacher teaching what God's Word says? Because all week long, we're given a worldview. We're given the, wor- the cultures speaking to us. God needs to speak. Our perspective needs to be given to us by God. God needs to remind us about what normal is. It's the reason why you should read your Bible every day. And we need to hear sermons to remember to be put in prop- a proper mindset. And the first point in your notes is ask eternal questions like this lawyer. Here's what he says in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, immediately previous to this, uh, Jesus sent out the 72 to do ministry to cast out demons to preach the kingdom of God and to heal. And he ended with saying, don't be excited that you were able to do those things powerfully, but be excited that your names were written in the book of life, that your names are written in heaven. He says, blessed are your eyes because they see what they see. And here we see a teacher of the law. When you think of a lawyer, don't think of civil law or criminal law. Think of someone who's an expert in the Old Testament scriptures, in the law of Moses. The leading Jewish teachers were the Pharisees, and the Pharisees had gathered around them experts in the law to prove their points. Their job was to know the law inside and out. And this lawyer, you think he would be one who has eyes to see. And he asks the right questions, but sadly, as we'll see, he comes to poor conclusions. But let's look at his good question. Behold, a lawyer stood up 
to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is not an uncommon question for Jesus to receive. The rich young ruler in Luke 18 asks him this question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Nicodemus comes with this question in John 3 and Acts 2. The crowds say, Brothers, what shall we do in light of your preaching? In Acts 16, the jailer says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? This is a question that came to Jesus often. Eternal life was on the hearts of the Jews. The Scripture taught eternal life. The Scriptures, the hope of Israel, was in life everlasting that would be brought about by a Messiah that would come. So this lawyer shows up to test him. Now, this can be interpreted, interpreted in a couple different ways, and there's no way to know for sure. He could be coming as a skeptic or as someone trying to trick Jesus to get him to say something false so he could turn against him. Definitely, in other places, we know that was true. The Scriptures tell us so. This also could be interpreted, though, he wants to know Jesus' answer. He wants to know what he would say because he's not asking, according to the text, for someone else, but for himself. Surely an expert in the law would know what it would take to gain eternal life, and yet he comes to Jesus with this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Why does he ask this question? This is the question that's on the heart of every human being that's ever lived. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that he's put eternity into man's heart. This scribe maybe knows the answer of what the law says, but maybe his conscience is getting to him. Maybe he needs to know for himself. Maybe he's bothered by the fact that although he tries to keep the law, maybe he knows the law is beyond his grasp. Jews have been looking forward to eternal life. Job, in Job 19.26, Job said, After my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. In 2 Samuel 12.23, when David's son dies, his son with Bathsheba, he says, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. They knew David had hope of eternal life, and this man is asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The best questions you'll ever ask are eternal questions. 
Because every human being is an eternal soul that'll go on forever. We're born immortal. Not one person in this room will ever go out of existence. Let's consider eternal life. Let's consider life everlasting in hell or heaven that we might ask and think properly about life. Let's begin with hell. Hell is the place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked apart from the presence of God's goodness. Let me repeat that. Hell is the place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked, apart from the presence of God's goodness. We need to think about and meditate upon what the Scripture says about living forever under eternal punishment. In the parable of the talents, at the end of it, in Matthew 25.30, Jesus says this about hell. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, you've never wept over something you weren't conscious of. It's being conscious of something horrible that causes you to weep and gnash your teeth. And it's eternal. In Matthew 25, 41, when Jesus talks about the final judgment and He talks about separating the sheep and the goats, He says to those on His left, the goats, He says, depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is an eternal fire. Eternal consciousness. And then in verse 46, he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And then on the Sermon on the Mount, in Mark 9, 43, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, for it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Every other fire we've known is quenchable. It ends. But hell is described as an unquenchable fire where a human soul who's now in an eternal body will burn in an unquenchable fire. And then Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus. In Luke 16.22, we read the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. There was a poor man that begged at this rich man's gates, begged for scraps. The poor man and the rich man died on the same day. 
And what we read is the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, now you're only in torment if you're conscious, right? You're with your thoughts. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. It would be better for him not to be able to see those with hope. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And then a few verses later, he says, I beg you to send our... our or then he said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. We don't live in a culture that wants to think or talk about or meditate on the things that Jesus talked about so clearly all the time. In Revelation 14.9, where the beast and those who are lost are punished. Here's what it says. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. What is the full strength of God's anger and wrath against sin? It says he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Everlasting consciousness torment that never ends with no rest forever and ever and ever. It's tough enough one day without rest. In Revelation 19.3, speaking of Babylon's fall, it says the smoke of her torment goes up forever and ever in Revelation 20, 10, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. The Bible speaks a lot about eternal punishment. And the Bible speaks with clarity about eternal punishment. Conscious Punishment eternally. Physical suffering under the just wrath of God. What should be our response to this? Here's Paul's response. Romans 9.1, considering his Jewish brothers and sisters who are rejecting Christ. He says... I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness me in the Holy Spirit 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and my kinsmen according to the flesh. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish in his heart for those who have rejected Christ. The proper response for those who still have opportunity to be saved. Have you been thinking and asking eternal questions? Have you been viewing the people around you in the eyes of eternity? I just read a couple weeks ago, Robert Gallaty put out this statistic. 82% of all unchurched people said they would attend church if they were invited. 82% of unchurched people said they would attend church if they were invited. And then he says this, the problem is, is that 2% of church members have invited someone to attend church in the last year. The only way that could be true is if we don't think in reality, in light of the eternal consequences of life apart from Christ. I'll never forget the time I came back from Christmas, uh, for Christmas break, sophomore year of college. And I went out to see a buddy of mine who I knew had been struggling with drugs. And I had heard that he had trusted Christ. He was a friend I hung out with all the time in elementary school, but in junior high and high school, uh, he just dove in, dove into the drug uh, crowd uh, to the point where, I mean, I just didn't know him. But I came out to his house, and there's a guy, his name is Joel, hitting a hockey puck against his garage outside, and he's a friend that I played hockey with in grade school and I played football with in high school. And he was a tough guy. He was a fighter. He was a popular party guy that I was intimidated by in high school. And Travis leaned out the door of his house. He said, I'll be out in a few minutes. So I'm standing there talking to Joel and I'm looking, I'm asking Joel, how's it going? He's going to school in Mankato. And I could just see sadness all over his face. And I'm feeling the nudge, talk to him. I mean, I've seen people that look like they don't have hope. For whatever reason, I could see it. I can't tell you four or five times trying to figure out how I'm going to talk about Christ with him. Travis ends up coming out. 
Don't think much about it. Two weeks later, my mom calls me and says, Sam, I just want to let you know, uh, Joel committed suicide. And I remember sitting on my couch underneath my lofted bed in my dorm room, thinking the thought, asking the questions. Why did words not come out of my mouth? What, what was it that kept me from speaking the words of life that I knew he needed to know? It was just things like this. What will he think of me? You know, what if, what if he thinks I'm dumb? What if, well, in light of the present circumstances, those fears seemed really silly. And I remember just praying, saying, God, help me not care about what people think about when I share Christ with them. Give me, burn this into my mind, how foolish it seems now. What's your response to people around you in light of eternal hell? What's God's response to eternal destruction? Ezekiel 33.11 says this, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? That's God's heart. Here's Christ weeping over Israel's rejection of him. Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers the brood under her wings and you were not willing. It is right for us to long for those who know, do not know Christ to know Christ. It's right for us to long for our children who only are seeing the here and now that don't have the eternal perspective to think eternal thoughts. It's not wrong to want angels and the devil to be destroyed now because they have no Savior. There is no hope for them, but for your fellow man that's still alive, weep for them. Long for them. Make a fool out of yourself by bringing up true things They'll think you're foolish. But you'll be the most loving friend they have. What keeps you from living lives in light of the eternal consequences? On the other side of glory, we get a glimpse into what it's like when we see God clearly for who He is. Here's why we struggle with eternal hell. Here's why it feels so wrong to us. It's because we have too high a view 
of our goodness or not a high enough view of our rebellion of how bad sin is. And we have too small a view of God's glory. If those two things were in perfect perspective, then we would understand. You might say, why does hell need to be eternal? Because the one in whom we sinned against is eternal and God is just. For God to give less than eternal punishment for offending the eternal glorious God would be to be unjust. It would be to say, my glory does not matter. It would be to defame His Son who has eternal worth, who paid the price for sins. Eternity is all there is. There is no going into non-existence. Someone who's considering suicide to enter into not living is entering eternal conscious life forever. Here's our peek into what people say in heaven. There's no way we're going to get through this whole sermon. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are Christians that have been killed for Christ's sake. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth. In heaven, when they see God's perfect glory and they see sin for what it is, they say, how long are you going to put up with this rebellion? And in Revelation 19, when we see Babylon fall, Here's what we hear. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice, a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Now, the wicked have been destroyed. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute, Babylon, the world system, who's corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they shall cry out, Hallelujah! The smoke of her torment goes up forever. We will not say God is not good when we see Him face to face as we consider eternal punishment. We'll say, You're good. You're just. How long will your patience go with rebellious mankind? If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn. I want you to use your imaginations with me. Luke 13, verse 25. <clears throat> We'll start actually in verse 22. 
And he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. And then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. These are people saying, I was in church, remember? I took communion. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you evil are workers of evil. And then this is the point. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Let Jesus' words bring sanity to your thinking, to bring sanity to the way you live your life and the way you relate to people. And let's turn to eternal life rather than eternal death. Heaven. Heaven is the place where the full presence of God's goodness dwells. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. And for those who go there, it's a place of everlasting bliss. There is no neutral. There is no purgatory. There is no halfway. It's two eternal extremes. Revelation 22.3 speaks of heaven. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. You know, after Adam and Eve sinned, they got thrust out of the garden, out of the presence of the dwelling place of God. And all mankind was born sinful, and their sin separated them from this good God. But in heaven, you dwell with God, where He dwells. His presence is with you. That's what makes heaven heaven and it's not just some floaty place it's an actual place Jesus Christ is in a place right now and it's where the Trinity dwells it's where the throne of God is yes God's everywhere at all times but his presence all the glory of his presence and goodness <coughs> is full in heaven where God is. But we're told that when Christ returns and all things are brought to culmination, there's going to be a new heaven and a 
new earth. In Isaiah 65, 17, we read this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. It, it means it'll be pass away, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And in Isaiah 66, 22, he says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Peter speaks of this. He speaks of this earth as we know it being created anew. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief when the heavens pass away with a roar, meaning the sky, and the heavenly bodies, the stars and planets will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening and coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire, and dissolve, that's the sky, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are awaiting for new heavens, new stars and planets, new heavenly bodies, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We cannot fathom the glories it'll be living in the new creation, without sin, all evil destroyed, Satan and his demons taken care of. Revelation 21.1 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. As he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Eternity. Eternity is reality. As we speak, people die and are thrust into eternity. That ought to weigh heavy on us. That's something I think about every Sunday before I preach. I'm preaching to souls that will last forever. It ought to be on our mind. We ought to have questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, we got through point one. We're going to see how Jesus responds next week 
but I am going to give you the answer. What does the scripture teach? As we're going to see next week, Jesus tells the man, what, what does it take to get to heaven? The man says, well, you got to love God perfectly with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yep, go do that. Yep, you'll live. You'll get eternal life. Wait, 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 wait. Who's my neighbor, he says. <laughs> because what does it mean to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? That means to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. You have to be utterly perfect and have no sin. And we're told that this lawyer came desired to justify himself. As the verse 29 says, after Jesus telling him you have to be perfect, the lawyer says, I got an idea. I'm going to try to justify myself. Who thinks that's a good idea in light of what it takes to have eternal life? And yet this is how blind and wicked and fallen the human heart is. Romans 10.3 says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What's God's righteousness? It's His Son, Jesus Christ. There's been one man who loved God perfectly and who loved fellow man perfectly. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. That's God's righteousness. And if you seek to justify yourself and find hope to the answer to how you can earn eternal life, you will spend eternity under the wrath of God for your sins because you can't undo sin you already did. And you can't stop sinning today or tomorrow because you're by nature children of wrath. In your flesh, in your, in, in your nature, you tend towards sin. And so what you need and what I need is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Let me finish by reading a passage that you know so well. John 3.14 And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That means lifted up on a cross. Why? That whoever believes in Him, in Him, may have eternal life. Which means life everlasting, but it also means the full life. The greatest type of life. That whosoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let the eternal consequences of our life, let us consider them. And as we consider them, let's all run to Christ. That's where our hope is. That's where our joy is. Everything here is passing away. Father, 
this seems so strange in light of the silly world we live in where the majority of what we see on TV is messing around and silliness and lighthearted joking as though there is no eternal life. Father, I pray that we would listen to Christ when he says, do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but let us lay up treasures for eternal life. Father, I pray that our minds would not be on this world, but we would set our minds where our hope is seated in heaven on on Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here who was believing that they were going to be saved because they were a good person. Father, I pray that they would lose hope as they look at your law and see perfection is demanded from a perfect God. Father, I pray that they would therefore be convicted of their sin. They would realize they're not good and that they would turn to you for mercy and find Jesus Christ, their perfect righteousness that they would grab onto him and cling to him and that he would be life to their soul. I pray that for us all in Jesus' name. Amen.